you know, it's a similar philosophy and that, that is a key thing where if I were to tell young artists one thing, I would say you have to commit to the lifestyle because the lifestyle is one where you build your life on speculation. Welcome to the Flying Fruit Bowl, a platform dedicated to the discussion and exploration of art and the creative process. I'm your host, Aroness, and this week's episode is the second part of a two-part conversation. If you haven't heard part one yet, please listen to last week's episode, and this part is the direct continuation of the conversation. Thank you very much. As well as painting onto canvases and panels, Anna has dabbled in and still creates both textile and public art. You know, the biggest chunk of your income goes towards where you live and why there's so many homeless people. You know, we can't afford to live to keep a roof over our heads anymore. So get out of debt. That's the way to do it. So moving to Chattanooga and looking at, you know, leaving the country and coming to the city and looking at how the development in the city Because I came to Chattanooga 10 years ago, right before the big expansion that's happening now. So I've actually been witnessing this development expansion and seeing how we struggle with keeping the beauty of the nature around us with the needs of urban expansion. And that's where the urban series came from was observe the observation of that coming from a country life into a city life again. And I saw it in Atlanta, hated it when I was there, but had to live there because of my business, loved it in the country, but in all honesty, it became boring after a while because there just wasn't enough to do. So I chose Chattanooga specifically for the size. There's only, it's only so big. This, this city can only get so big. It cannot geographically become another Atlanta. Atlanta can gobble up the entire state of Georgia, which is what it's going to do at mm. some point. Because Atlanta is now the city that decides the political, the elections of the state of Georgia because it's grown so big. It's it's fascinating to me to, to watch that kind of push-pull that goes on. So the urban grids were born out of, first of all, Atlanta is a city that has a lot of squirrely roads that, you know, there's not a grid anywhere in the place. It's just squirrely roads all over the place, you know, cow paths that were paved over. Um, Chattanooga, the city, is actually a very grid. And Sarasota, the town I grew up in in Florida, was also a very grid city. Very easy to get around in. I mean, you know, and we have, you, all you have to do is find out where Lookout Mountain is and you know where South is. So, you know, it's it's very easy to navigate both geographically and, and the way they've set up the city. And I became fascinated about city life and city streets and how there were sections of Chattanooga that had erosion had taken its, you know, there was, this was a big manufacturing town and then it was abandoned. Manufacturing moved out of the city 
and moved to other parts of the country and out into the country um, in Tennessee. And so you had all of these areas of Chattanooga that were just dead. I mean, they were just, you know, all of these manufacturing plants that were just eroding into the ground. So there was this wonderful erosion of these buildings and, you know, metal and rusty metal and all this stuff, all this visual texture going on in these parts of these undeveloped parts. And I was fascinated by that. And so I, when I first moved here, I went around with my camera, my Nikon D40, which my Apple smartphone takes better photos than it does now, which is so funny. Um, but I went around with my Nikon and I took all these photographs of erosion and so forth. And so I have this library of imagery that I can pull from. And then I take city maps and I look at the street structure and that's where the grids came from, was a bird's eye view of city streets that, you know, you get a tornado, you get flash flooding, you get earthquakes, you have hurricanes, you know, you have all of these natural disasters come in and wipe out what we build. And we have to rebuild them again. So the, the maintenance, you know, this push pull of humanity against nature is what interests me in my work now. And it was sparked by my mother getting dementia. I looked at the erosion of my mother's mind and it fascinated me. It appalled me and mm. it fascinated me at the same time because I watched this dramatic change when it really got it, its um, teeth in her. Um, you know, she became someone I didn't know anymore. And then it was really weird because she didn't know me anymore. And I can't imagine a worse fate um, for someone, especially an intellectual, to lose their mind like that hmm. um, to dementia. And there are periods of lucidity when you know you're losing your mind to dementia or Alzheimer's until you get to the point where you just don't know anymore. Um, but that period where you know what's happening to you is, is, is really because I had conversations with my mother when she was lucid. And she knew what was happening. And so going with through her with with going through that with her, I started thinking about the erosion of the mind. And I, I started looking around my studio because I was still doing the figurative abstract work at that time, but starting to see the collector base shrinking for that work. And then I was needing to do something else. And part of the process was to build up layers of color and then sand them down. So it was abstract, it was it was additive and subtractive to get those rich layers of color and texture that I would build the, the figure around in that sort of almost cubist mat manner like um, the stained glass windows we talked about earlier and saturated color. And so, I started looking at these sandpaper fragments from my sandpaper blocks. And one of my favorite things to do was to sand into paint that was still slightly wet, kind of tacky. Oh. And it would do something to the surface that engaged me in such a way that I could elaborate on. And I would toss the sandpaper aside 
And they, in the beginning, I was tossing them out. And then I started looking at these sandpaper fragments going, these are really beautiful. Because they were collecting colors of paint in a random way that I wasn't paying attention to at all. And embedding themselves into that rough surface and drying on the surface and becoming part of that surface. And I thought, this is really interesting. What can I do with these? So I started cutting them up into strips. Oh. And that's where the weavings came from. Yeah. They started out as sandpaper weavings. And wow. so I started, I'm like, well, what can I do with these? So I just started playing with them. I was like, okay, let's put it. They started out as kind of overlapping collages. And then I said, well, that's not quite enough. Let's, let's cut them even into thinner strips and, you know, kind of weave them together and make these sections. And then I was like, wow, I could make these little weavings from these. And then, but if I don't glue them together, they're not going to stay together very well. Yeah. So what can I do? And then I actually, when I'm, one of the other things that happened when I moved to Chattanooga was um, I joined a, I, I discovered book arts. And so there's a book arts page on my website. And that really was kind of a culmination of the early graphic design days where we had to physically put brochures and things together. So it was a natural for me to take to book arts and then learn the various different types of binding. And one of my favorite binding methods was Coptic binding, which is an ancient method. All the early um, religious texts were put together by the monks through Coptic binding. So it has a long history. Um, and the stitching and discovering Irish linen waxed thread, which is what you use in book binding, it's really strong. So I started punching holes all along the warp and weft of the sandpaper pieces and I started stitching them together. And it was this process of, of, of one hobby leading to another part and coming back and informing my art practice in different ways. So I really encourage artists to try different media just to see what it does. It makes you think about your work in different ways. It forces you to look at different ways of putting materials together that it all it doesn't always have to be about paint going on canvas or panel it doesn't yeah. always have to be about sculpture from a block of wood or clay it you know there's so many different ways of putting media together today so many creative ways of doing it that just about anybody who has any interest in any type of media can become an artist just from observing the way different elements go together and what works best. So then the weavings kind of grew and I just saw them as an offshoot, just kind of a thing I did for myself. I didn't see them really as marketable. Um, and again, it was just something I wanted to do for myself, which I do a lot of. I do a lot of stuff in my studio in my off time where it's just for me. I don't care about collectors. I don't care if it's sellability. I don't care about finding a um, market for it. I do it for the love of it. And that's what keeps me going back to the regular practice that does keep the roof over my head because I still have to pay property taxes. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I own my own house, I still have to pay taxes. Yeah. Um, and I still have to put food in my mouth and pay utilities and all of that. So, so it's, it's easier 
when you don't have mortgage or rent looming over your head, like the sort of Damocles, you know, yeah. um, because it can be that oppressive um, and, and that daunting when you, you when you choose the lifestyle of an artist. But I do say that not only was it based on me not having any real interest in anything else when I took that aptitude test all those years ago, um, but also just a compulsion and an obsession to create something with my hands. It, that's absolutely fascinating because there's like, what I love actually the most is like, there's a lot of experimentation there and there's a lot of like, just kind of trusting yourself with you know creating things that you know it may work out it may not like your weavings for like for example like that's such a great way that you discovered them because like as you said like they weren't anything for you they weren't anything for for you to be selling they weren't anything they were just for you just to kind of enjoy and it's like i like the idea of like you should always have one thing that you do in your life that does not make you money you do just because you enjoy because the problem is that everything nowadays is about money everything's about making money and it's like not everything is about money money is very important but everything's not about money. And I think money very much quickly can kill off creativity. So I think, you know, you have to have at least one thing you do in your entire life that is not about money, that you do just for joy and the pleasure of being able to. Because, you know, creating arcs are luxury for most people. Um, and I think we think, often forget the fact that the fact that you can even create anything, no matter what it is, is often a luxury. You know, not everyone has that that ability to be able to do that. That's true. We are a luxury item. That is a great way to put it. And luxury items are not necessary yeah. on the surface to society. But the more you delve into society, one of my science credits in college was anthropology. And I decided on it because, well, you know, I wanted to learn a little bit more about evolution. I was immersed in religion growing up through the Catholic yeah. Church. Let's let's flip the coin and look at the other side, right? And let's look at evolution. Let's look at how we came about. Let's look at the history of the planet and the history of people. Believe it or not, the name of my professor was Professor Tongue, which I still laugh about that today because he was the, I mean, he was just so dry and such a horrible teacher. I'm amazed that I got anything out of it, but, but I'm glad I took it because it really made me look at evolution in respect to the evolution, not only of humans and the environment, but the creative evolution of an artist or how you get into it and how your evolution is natural and how it's needed. Because any species that doesn't evolve will cease to exist. So if you look at your art practice like that, you can really have an advantage because you can say, look, that was why I paid attention to my collector base diminishing from the figurative work. What was selling? How can I create abstraction that I'm still happy about making? And what's going to bring me a new collector base? Because Essentially, that's what an artist has to keep doing. You have to keep building new collector bases because they always change. Of course. And if you're not, every generation of collectors are 
interested in different types of art. And so you follow that path and you pay attention to it and you reinvent yourself or you will not survive as an artist. You'll become a has-been artist. You'll, you'll have that one period where you're the golden artist in the sun and then nothing. True. That's very true. So no, that's a good way to look at it, actually. And also, I really liked your earlier, your kind of breakdown of like the different kind of generations and like how their lifestyles really kind of, they almost dictate what kind of art they can and can't buy. Because I think we'll get to a point like in maybe 50 years, say, depending on the society, like where people just won't, may not even be able to buy art outright, but just because it'll either be too exclusive or no one will have the money. You know, I think it will probably go that way, unfortunately. Um, so there's kind of a good consideration. Um, but one thing I want to touch upon is your public art as well, because I think this is really interesting about the idea of, because I think, a lot for you know, unless you're like, quote unquote, I don't have people at the time, but unless you're a street artist, quote unquote, or environmental artist, you know, not a lot of artists get the opportunity to have their work actually exhibited outside or displayed outside on a large scale. So like, I'm kind of really curious, like, where did the public art come into play? And how did you kind of find these opportunities? And kind of like, what product did you present? Yeah, it's it's a whole nother realm in the art world that a lot of artists don't even consider. Hmm. It's one of the reasons why I chose Chattanooga. When I was thinking about leaving Blue Ridge, Georgia, I knew I wanted to stay kind of in this region because I've lived here all my life and I know it. And I don't agree with the politics of the South, but that's that's a whole nother discussion. Um so I, I had it honed down to two choices, and I was looking at Asheville, North Carolina, and Chattanooga, Tennessee. And when I looked at Asheville, when I looked at the cost of living, 10 years ago, when I looked at the cost of living from Asheville versus Chattanooga, it was dramatically different. Asheville was way more expensive. And so I said, okay, I can't afford to buy a house because I knew I wanted to pay cash for a house. yeah. So I started looking at what was available then and what the prices were. And I said, I can't afford Asheville and I could afford Chattanooga because it was before the, the boom that happened here or that's going on now. And um, the other reason why I chose Chattanooga and what sparked my interest, because when I just Googled Chattanooga, I was like, what is it, you know, and, and I'd come up here for the Four Bridges Arts Festival and a neighbor of mine had been and she dragged me up here and I said, oh, I actually really like this city. I like the way it's laid out. I like everything about it, blah, blah, blah. And then when I just was Googling it just to get an idea of where this was, I was thinking about moving to. What kept popping up was public art. And it's like this, the city of Chattanooga actually made a department within the city called Public Art Chattanooga. Wow. And they devote 1%. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it ends up being a pretty fair amount of all the property taxes that are collected in Chattanooga. And the surrounding area goes to Public Art Chattanooga. They made a commitment as a city to do that. That's really cool, actually. That's really cool. So that was another reason I said, you know never thought about public art before and here were all these articles popping up about public art and I said okay so I started 
researching that more. And I was really excited with what I saw in the public art realm before I moved here. So that actually was like the final decision make, making element of moving here was their devotion to public art. So I actually got, it was interesting. I, I bought into a neighborhood here um, called Highland Park. And at the time, it was pretty dicey neighborhood. It's an inner city neighborhood. It had the crack epidemic of the 90s really hit this neighborhood hard. Everybody moved out. All the white people moved out to the suburbs. You know, it was largely a, a people of color neighborhood. Um, not very good incomes. But the original homes were these big homes that were Highland Park was the original suburb of Chattanooga. And it was based of the great flood of 1889 that flooded the entire, the Tennessee River flooded the entire downtown. And so people were like, okay, now we need to move outside of the city. And it's was called Highland Park because you actually go up a hill to get to it. So um, when I moved here, I actually kind of got involved in the Neighborhood Association. I met another artist, a local artist by the name of Kevin Bate. And at that time, he was working on getting a grant to do a mural project on Macaulay Avenue, which is just like two blocks over. And he approached me about being one of the artists involved in this Macaulay Arts um, uh, mural project. And I, so I said, well, sure, why not? So we had a designated amount of money that each of us had, and it was enough for me to do. And we got together as a group and we went up and down at the, he had approached the businesses with the buildings that um, would allow us to paint on their buildings. And so we had several buildings to choose from. And so we all choose the walls we wanted to paint and began that process. And that's what introduced me to public art in a more practical sense. And I started um, pursuing public art on my own. And after that, you have to get adept at grant writing. You have to really understand how to put a grant application together. And it is a whole nother world, let me tell you. And you have to follow it to the letter. Because if you do one thing wrong on that application, it kicks you out. So it is that simple and that devastating. So you have to really pay attention. You have to really devise a project that really works within the parameters of that grant. So you have to really pay attention and there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through to, to get accepted. So for some reason, maybe because of my marketing background again, which has helped me all along in my career, I was able to make that, learn that very easily and do it because I also wrote copy when I was a designer as well. So I did did a lot of that as well. So I have all these skill skills that the average artist doesn't have that okay. have been brought over into my my um, art practice. So, you know, A, you have to be able to either live in a city that designates public art as part of their environment, or you have to be able or willing to go wherever public art projects are available. It might mean traveling to another city to produce a public art piece, and then you get into 
travel expenses and living expenses away from your home. So there's some limitations to public art. And, you know, if you happen to live like in L.A. or New York, you know, or Miami, any of the big cities, they have very healthy public art stuff going on. Look, look for cities close to you. That would be an easy commute that might have public art projects if you're interested in getting into it. One thing I will is a cautionary tale to public art. Um, kind of the last thing I'll say about it is you don't get paid very much for the mm -hmm. amount of work you put into it. It is a labor of love and you, it's something, but the one thing I will say is it not only helps you learn how to navigate through a very governmental system, through the, the grant applications, but it also um, engages you with the public and the neighborhoods that you're creating art for, because a lot of the research you do for your project, you have to engage that neighborhood. Hmm. Um, so you learn about where you live and you learn about the people who live there. And that's really rewarding. And then you also are paid to create a piece of art that's accessible to everybody. Yeah. And that is the main attraction to public art. Yeah. Cause I was going to say, if you, yeah, okay, if you don't get paid much, fair enough. But like the fact that your work is going to be viewed in a context that is completely different from how people normally view your work is actually a really extraordinary good opportunity because, you know, not everybody gets to have their work presented like that. And, you know, the kind of feedback you'll get will be like actual real world, real life feedback, not, are we like it? It's cool, you know, heart eye emoji. It's, you know, it's actual feedback that you actually want to hear from people, you know, and I think, and it also it adds to the actual landscape of where you live. It's not just, Oh, it's here today. I'll be gone tomorrow. It's like this is going to stick around. Yeah, it will, and also what's nice about public art, I think, from my perspective, is that it weathers with the environment. It becomes the environment itself, and I like that. There's something really nice about like it's it's the city you live in. It becomes the city you live in, and I like that. There's something nice about that. Um, but do you think there should be more accessible accessibility for artists to create public art? Absolutely. I think that any city that engages in a lively public art system and creates it and makes it actually part of their city government, um, it actually promotes, in one way it's it's good, in one way it's bad, it, does, it promotes development. It gets developers interested in your area. So it's something mm. that can actually bring economic it, there's been a lot of studies done on dilapidated areas of cities that have been targets of public art, and it brings prosperity to that area. So not only is it uplifting in that it gives artists another form in which to, to produce, and it gives you that rewarding, that satisfaction of having very accessible art and participating in it and beautifying where you live, but it also brings economic prosperity to areas and you know they do credit public art Chattanooga as part of the development craze here as well as well we did something in our city that um was pretty amazing we're called gig city because Chattanooga was the first city in the United States to embed a fiber optic optic network into the power grid oh they got a federal government grant to pay for part of it. The city kicked in millions, uh, tens of millions of dollars. And then the local energy company, EPB, kicked in. Everybody kicked in this equal amount of money 
from oh. three different sources and they embedded the fiber optics into the power grid. We have some of the fastest internet in the world in our city. In this little town of Chattanooga, which is so, well, actually we're a mid-sized town. So. <laughs> Downtown is 160,000, but the Chattanooga area is 500,000. That's not, that's not small change. That's a, no. a mid-sized city. So we started getting all these write-ups in the New York Times and Forbes magazine. And that's what, every, all of a sudden, everybody, we got all these startup companies, which were leaving the tech industry in California coming to the, because it, it was it's a lot cheaper to live there's no state income tax in Tennessee so that's an additive um, and there's a lot of business incentive taxes that draws business to this area so it's been kind of this nexus point of bringing a lot of um, different elements together turned to, it's turned us into a boom town I'm harassed by people that want to buy my house and I can I could no longer afford to buy a house for cash in Chattanooga. Wow. Ten years. That's so impressive. it turned out to be a great investment. I mean, my friends and who knew me from Atlanta when they told, you know, they could understand why I moved to Blue Ridge to be around beauty to hone my art. They could not understand why I moved to Chattanooga. They were like, You're moving where? <laughs> And now they're eating their words because they realize what a good investment I made by coming here. But the arts play a big part of that. A lot of artists moved to Chattanooga because of the lively arts. We're still not a sophisticated collector market here, but but a lot of artists live here. I don't sell well in Chattanooga. Hmm. Um, I sell well other places. All my galleries are elsewhere. So interesting. Yeah. So I ship ship my work everywhere. Yeah. So geography is interesting, actually. The point you raise, like the fact that you live in a city that you know isn't a place in which you can sell your work well. And I think like, how important do you think it is for an artist to think about their location or like where they're based? Again, it goes back to that question: what is it that you want? Hmm. Um, one thing I will say is if if you're willing to live in a place like Miami or Los Angeles or New York, um, if you can stomach that level of intensity in terms of a city, and of course, I'm in your case, it would probably be London yeah. um, or Glasgow or or wherever wherever you are in the world or Beijing in China. Um, if you're willing to live in a major urban environment, the advantages that you will have probably a more sophisticated art market than you do in smaller towns. And so your opportunities for showing and exhibitions and gaining notoriety are going to be bigger. Um, So the other thing that's kind of emerged and another thing that drove the substrate on which I work now is shipping costs. So so that's something you have to consider if you do want to live in a smaller town and you do get in to selling venues that are far away from where you live, where you can't really drive to them and deliver artwork um, in a reasonable amount of time if they're cross country or another part of the world or so on, you have to think about shipping expenses. And the, the pandemic changed the world was shipping 
because, you know, not only did it produce scarcity in a lot of ways, and then we saw um, inflation take off as a manifestation of the pandemic. Also, FedEx and UPS, at least in our country, I don't know what entities you have elsewhere, um, they quit taking oversized packages because they were overwhelmed by the isolation of everybody due to the pandemic and having to order so much stuff online. So they were overwhelmed by the amount of business that came with it. So they did a size limitation, which meant you, if you do large artwork, like I do large abstracts, it means you had to go to freight shipping. I don't know if you've ever priced shipping with freight. No, but I imagine that's not going to be cheap. Astronomical. It's astronomical in price. I mean, one piece, like a recent, I had actually had an actual large sale off Instagram um, last year, which surprised the heck out of me. Um, And I looked at freight. I was given for a single piece, a 40 by 60 panel in a freight was $1,500. It was from, from Chattanooga, Tennessee to Rutherford, New Jersey. It's not even out of the country. Which is just just west of New York. Like that's not even out of the country. That's insane. It's on the same coast for Pete's sake. You know, it was a pretty and I was I was I actually laughed at the guy. (laughs) I laughed. (laughs) So I just said What else can you do? I'm sorry. I you know, I just couldn't compute that. So of course I didn't do that. So I actually ended up for that particular um piece i went to what what is called a white glove service which believe it or not was cheaper than everybody else which i was shocked and these are um art transport companies and there's a few of them now in the united states i don't know if there's any in the uk Mm -hmm. um where it's like a fleet of vans and each of these vans is outfitted to transport a certain type of type of art whether it's paintings, two-dimensional work or three-dimensional work. And they have a schedule. So you contact them and you give them your information where they would be picking up the piece of artwork and where they'd be transporting it to. And they put you on a delivery schedule. If your client is willing to do that, it took three weeks for them to come and work us into the schedule and come pick up the piece and you minimally pack it because you're not, it's not being tossed around like it does with UPS yeah. or FedEx. So it was a basic wrapping with cardboard on the front, um, glassine paper, small bubble wrap, cardboard on the front, corner protectors, and that was it. Oh. And it was ready for pickup. And so they showed up when they said they were going to show up. They pulled right up into my driveway. They came in, they looked over the piece, made sure it fit their insurance requirements for the packaging level. And it did. And he picked it up and took it out to his van and went up to Rutherford, New Jersey, along his path with his other deliveries. And it was delivered within four days. Wow. That's cool. And it cost just over $500. And wow. I split it with the client. 
because she bought it directly from my studio. So that was the discount she got was me splitting the shipping with her. So yeah. these are these are nuts and bolts things that artists have to think about with their career. Do you want to live in a place where you want to sell your work? Do you want to personally I wouldn't want to live in LA. I'm sorry. And it's where the, the art scene has moved in the United States is hmm. LA is, is the big city now. New York is waning. Chicago has been gone for a long time. <laughs> um, Miami is still okay, but uh, Art, Art Basel, Miami still does pretty well down there, but um, that's about it. And so everything is, is LA focused. And I think that has to do with Pacific Rim and China entering the art scenes. So um, proximity, but yes, proximity is important for us to think about. You have to think about shipping. Are you going to get in galleries? So what I, what I did based on this astronomical shipping fees that started happening from the pandemic is I said, okay, my galleries still want large pieces. So what I did was I said, okay, I'm going to try painting on canvas. I've never liked canvas because I know I don't like stretch working on stretch canvas because it moves. Hmm. And I like a hard surface, especially with collage and especially because I put so much material on it. I had to think about that. So I use heavy duty cotton canvas. Linen will not take what I do. Um, it, it, it'll just sag in, in areas if, if you don't you need a really strong substrate for collage. And that's primary focus of my work is collage mixed with paint. And then, um, so I said, okay, I'm just going to buy it in, in rolls. So I bought a big ass roll of canvas and, and I happened to have some working panels hanging around the studio because I'd done a large weaving commission and it was a transport panel for this giant weaving that I did. And we had to hot, we had to rent a truck to get this thing because it went into a local hotel. And oh. it was six feet by 11 feet. And I've never done a weaving that big. And it was That's an insane. amazing project. It was insane. But it was, it took up my entire studio because okay. I have a smallish studio. So I had to build a panel wall to build this thing against out of plywood with a back frame. And so I had all these panels left over. So I had these working panels. And I said, I'm just going to cut them to the size I want to do them. And I'm going to sort of kind of stretch them onto these panels and staple them down. And that's how I'm going to work on this work. And I finished the work and I top coat it. I release it from the panel and I roll it up and I stick it in a tube and I ship it to the galleries. For about, depending on I can get, I usually do about an eight inch diameter outer tube with a five inch diameter inner tube that you wrap the canvas. Yeah. And you can get four or five big pieces into one tube oh. and ship them across the country and it costs you maybe 300 bucks rolled up in a tube. And then there's the stretching fee on the other end. It depends on the gallery. Sometimes the gallery will front the cost on it. I have two galleries that will do that. And then they add that cost to the retail price and they keep it when they sell it. Oh, wow. um, other, other galleries ask me to pay for the stretching fee and that's fine. I'm fine with that because it's minimal. Yeah. And then I have a, a gallery that, that splits the cost with me. And then we just split the 50-50 commission, no problem. Add, added to the price and then we just split it and so so there are clever ways and this was my way of dealing with the changes in 
the shipping industry and the scarcity of the pandemic and what was going on. And so not only is I do I no longer because construction trade boomed in the pandemic, mm. everybody decided to work. I couldn't afford panels anymore from my carpenter. Oh, the price. So I work my full time job. I work in retail, but I work in a hardware store. And I cook things on a timber saw for people. So the price of wood has gone up, has doubled in the last year easily. So I, I know like terms of like construction and just terms of like wood and stuff like that is it's astronomical at the minute. And it's only a gang up as well. I know. And so when you look at the cost of a roll of an unstretched roll of canvas, I can get a 72 inch by 10 yard roll of canvas of heavy duty cotton. I mean, this is like a, a 20 ounce per square inch gauge on this stuff. It's heavy. I mean, I get those rolls. I have to drag them in the house. <laughs> yeah. It's so heavy. Um, but I can get four to five bigger pieces out of one roll for just over 200 bucks. Mm. Then a couple hundred bucks to ship it and a couple hundred bucks to stretch it, you know, 150 to stretch it when you look at panel costs and you look at shipping costs of those panels and you look at it's it, it's like a fraction of what I was paying before so that's why I switched to that and these are these are things that this is what I find fascinating about being an artist is it's all about um, determination to be flexible because artists have to develop flexibility for these very reasons all of a sudden we're faced with a pandemic how are we going to sell our artwork? How are we going to get it to our galleries? You know, how did this, this change me from working on panel to canvas for that very mm. reason? And usually I, I, mean, I used to hate canvas for that reason. I just don't like my substrate moving on me. I like to have a solid surface I'm working on. It's, um, it's interesting to see how resourceful you are, though. Like, it's not just, you know, you, you know, you didn't just sit there and be like, oh, well, this is annoying. You actually made changes that actually has helped you. Well, yeah, and I think that's that's the the beauty of creativity is it's it's all about you know adaptability. I mean, and that's how species survive is this 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 learning of anthropology and learning about evolution. You know, that was a key element to my education that I've applied to my art practice. How do I survive as an artist? What are the changes that I need to make? Um, pay attention, you know be motivated to make the changes you need to make to survive because if you don't everything's going to go away hmm. and, and you're right about your statement earlier about the future of art we have a finite period of time that two-dimensional art is going to be sought out hmm. and, and we're already we're already seeing that shift really i think in many ways with the whole nft uh kind of like boom rise whatever you want to call it trend right. i don't know but i think it's kind of it's kind of got a lot of artists worried, but I think it also it's kind of generated a lot of intrigue in the arts as well. I think it hasn't it hasn't all been that bad. Like I don't, it's not something that I'm still aware of. It's not something I put a lot of time or effort or energy into looking at, you know, rightly or wrongly. But one thing I do understand or do appreciate the fact that people are thinking about art a lot more now than they were, like say two years ago. That's true. Um, I mean, I looked into NFTs because I started getting harassed on Instagram about. <laughs> I think that's why people who don't want to do NFTs because they're getting harassed. NFT, right? 
And I was like, you know, what, what, is, what, what the heck is an NFT? I didn't even know what it was, you know, until I started popping up and then I looked into it and I actually talked about it in another art talk I did, um, another Zoom art talk. And I was like, so in the United States, you know, and I don't know if this is global, but NFTs are bought through cryptocurrency hmm. and not actual cash. So um, first of all, in the United States, cryptocurrency is illegal. Is it? it? What I find fascinating is not only it's it's weird. It's this illegal currency that's not regulated in any way. It's not backed in any way. There's nothing. There's no guarantee. That's why it keeps crashing. Why cryptocurrency hmm. crashes all the time? There's nothing backing it. Um, and at the same side of it, there are some retailers that accept cryptocurrency, like Home Depot. I was shocked. Really? That's that great. Home Depot accepts cryptocurrency? I was like, you're kidding me. That's bizarre that anywhere that's a, a physical establishment would accept cryptocurrency. That that wouldn't, well, as far as I know, I might be wrong, but that does not happen in the UK. Like, that's just not something that happens. I've never known like- anywhere to accept that. I was shocked. Believe me, when I started re- doing the research on it, I was shocked. I said, well, you know, there's very few retailers that will take the cryptocurrency, but mm. they're starting. And it, it's like any other switch in technology. It's market driven. Mm. So at some point, cryptocurrency is going to be more and more accepted by retailers. And that's what's going to push them to create laws in the United States that accept it and regulate it. And then it'll be taxed and all this other stuff. So, you know, it's it's inevitable that cryptocurrency will be in the future. And in fact, it might be the future of commerce, might be all cryptocurrency. I have no idea. Um, we could be heading in that direction. But I think that part of, you know, you, you have to think about, like, what is the dwelling of the future going to look like? And, and will my artwork fit into that dwelling of the future? Now, I think it'll be beyond my lifetime because I'm already in my early 60s. And so I think by the time we get to the point where people quit buying two-dimensional work, I'll probably be dead. <laughs> hmm. And so, you know, I'm I'm not that worried about it. I if I was a young artist today, yeah, I would definitely be worried about it. And I would think about, well, what how can I follow the trends and how can I start creating work? And I would get into the digital sphere of creating art. If 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 you're worried about it do it you know do it in your spare time be adaptable you know you know follow the 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 stasis of evolution and you know get ahead of it because there are several artists that follow instagram that are doing the nfts they don't like it they're kind of doing it grudgingly there are others who love it like photographers because they're already their work already exists in a digital realm because they're mostly digital artists, there's very few film photographers left in the world. And so it's a natural for them to get into NFTs, not so much for physical artists. Now, I have to say that for me, I love my work in Photoshop. I love designing my pieces in Photoshop. I love working out compositional issues. Sometimes I'll even do a preliminary sketch in Photoshop and then I start the piece in reality and it's not working in the physical sense how it was looking in photoshop and so i paint myself into a corner and what i'll do is i'll photograph it in its current state and then i'll take it back into photoshop and i'll play with it 
And that uh-huh. gives me the freedom to just do whatever the heck I want with it because I, I'm not ruining the surface or yeah. trying to do something to the surface that's hopefully something wonderful is going to happen. I can take it back into a digital realm and I can play around with it. And then it gives me a direction to go in. So I find this to be a huge advantage in the studio. So what I love about that is that this whole idea of like construction and reconstruction and deconstruction in your work, which is like very much kind of parallels the idea of the cities, which of the work derives from. And that's kind of very, very interesting because like your work is very much you going back and forth between what you want to add, what you want to take away. You know what should remain, what should be, you know, kept. And I, I like that, and that's really nice. It's a nice parallel. Is that deliberate? Absolutely. I mean, the process is driven by my thesis, which is about you know the erosion of city states by through natural disaster, and then the fact that we have to constantly maintain these cities in order to keep them alive and working. Um, you know, California in particular has a lot of issues in terms of, you know, well, wildfires are prevalent. Now there's flash floods and, you know, they're they're in a very precarious situation. They've had a long time drought out there that is like now they're getting drowned. So it's like these extremes. And that's what they warn about in the future with climate changes and global warming is that you know it's going to be everything's going to be more extreme. What I've found about where I live and thinking about geography is that we're kind of in a sweet spot where we're at in the country because by the time hurricanes hit the East Coast or the Gulf and come north, they're dissipated by the time they get to us. Mm. And so we don't have the hurricane worry that the coastlines do. Um, That'll change in the future once the coastline, the current coastlines disappear and are underwater. So the new coastline, so everything's going to shrink. Everyone's going to be moving inland. Everyone's going to be going north um, to a point. And then they're going to be living in on the uh, southern, um, what do they call it down there? Antarctica, um, because there's an actual land mass there that could actually be built out and lived upon. So the Antarctic is going to be a, a population of the future. And the North Pole can't be lived on because it's all ice. And once it melts off, it's gone. (laughs) So, you know, there are countries that are already starting to lay claim to parts of the Antarctica. That's weird. But I think also what's really interesting for me is because obviously here in the UK, we don't have natural disasters in the same way. Like it's obviously we have none of that. It's not where we even have to think about. And only until you mention it, I'm like, that's so strange that, of course, for somewhere like any part of America or at least some parts of America, like the idea of construction is constant because you're always rebuilding because things are always happening here. Like in London, London's always just being rebuilt anyway. And construction around the UK is always prevalent, but it's not for the same reasons, which is really interesting, actually. Yeah. You have rain or no rain over there. That's pretty yeah. much snow yeah. or no snow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I went to uh, England back in 1997. I went on a trip and flew into London and then went up to York and then Bath, you know, kind of did that triangle. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Good triangle. So, that. Yeah. So it was really interesting to see the contrast between those three places. Took Loved public transportation, Took got, got a train, hmm. you know, um, bus pass or a train pass where, you know, I could go between the cities. It was wonderful. It was great, great public transportation. But I do remember having conversations because I've always loved everything British and I love yeah. British humor. 
and I love British murder mysteries and I've always been a Monty okay. Python fan. And so, I mean, the whole thing yeah. is British humor appeals to me a lot. And so I remember having conversations with people and they, they were like, oh yeah, you live over there with all that big weather. That's what they call it. Big, <laughs> what you guys call it, the big weather, all that big. And it's true. It's, it's, it's massive. You know, when mm-hmm. you just look at the scale of those hurricanes, it's, it's terrifying. It's, and, it's, yeah. It's insane. And growing up in South Florida, I mean, it was very part of our environment, whether we were going to constantly have this sort of Damocles over us, this is that hurricane going to curl around into the Gulf and hit the West Coast of Florida. So it was that constant worry. Um, So, yeah, I think that geography informs. I know that a lot of artists that I follow in the Northwest, um, they most of their art is based on northwest environment you know Hmm. trees and mountains and that kind of thing so i know that depending on where you live reflect and it should i I think it should reflect on the work that you do um unless you're going into the more academic side like we talked about earlier is it about a big idea or is it about your environment? You know, so mine is derived from the city in which I live. And then I've morphed it into this urban series that has a lot of different offshoots, which I find very useful because different galleries want different things. So I would encourage artists, if you're looking to get into the gallery circle, which is still alive and well, by the way, in fact, they've seen a boon in growth since the pandemic. Plus, there was also, you know, when the event industry collapsed and art fairs suffered, and, you know, everything was just shut down. Um, galleries, but, but there was even prior to the pandemic, the top end collector base was getting tired of the art fairs. They were looking for a more intimate relationship that gallery, brick and mortar galleries provide, more catering to their specific needs rather than going to the art mall, which is what, you know. So I think that the stress is because they were starting to see there was too many art fairs, you know, not enough collectors to go around. It was really became a tourist attraction. The art fairs, all these tourists were showing us. This mobs you see at all those art fairs, they're not, they're not all collectors, they're tourists. So there was this false impression that the art fairs were getting all these gobs of collectors, and that was not the case. The real collectors, the ones that were actually buying the art, can come on the VIP nights when it's not open to the public, and they go in and they make their selections, pay their money, and leave. And then all the public comes and the tourists, and they go around to look at yeah. art. Yeah. So, so there was this false impression about art fairs, and so. The pandemic shut all that down. And then also the need for the fact that the art fairs were starting to put galleries out of business was, you know, those two, they were supposed to work that, you know, it was all about intention. They, the reason they were set up to where to be in an art fair, you had to have a brick and mortar gallery in order to get in is because they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to put galleries out of business, but inadvertently they did anyway. Because all the collectors wanted to go to the art fairs initially um, before the the art fair fatigue happened. And so um, they couldn't afford to ship massive amounts of art to these art fairs. 
pay exorbitant because I mean those booze like at basil start at 50 grand that's insane so for a small gallery or a mid-sized gallery they couldn't afford it they couldn't afford to do both the art fairs and keep a brick and mortar space so they ended up shooting themselves in the foot yeah yeah because I went to the other art fair in London probably about just under two weeks ago um and it was a great experience but the amount of money that one booth costs is is a, a lot of money for people um who may not have that kind of money and it's it's kind of it's such a huge gamble as an artist if you're going to go as an artist for your individual self is a huge gamble but as like a business like whereas in like that money you could be profiting by you know opening more shows like that's a huge gamble that's a huge risk and since it's always in flux the art market is hmm. always in flux that's another reason why you have to commit to the lifestyle is it's always in flux um, there is no sure anything because um, I could remember having conversations pre-pandemic. Everyone's saying, well, Anna, Anna, why are you still in galleries? They're they're going the way of the dinosaur. And I said, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, it's all going to change again. Mm-hmm. And then now I think the key thing is um, the key word that I'm hearing is immersive art. Mm-hmm. And why Yayoi Kusama was so became so popular with her infinity rooms because people would walk into this environment and experience this infinity room I saw her at the high museum in Atlanta I made the trek down there for for her exhibit and it was you know the selfie moment Hmm. of of you know photographing yourself inside of the space and being in this immersive environment and I do think that the art of the future will be some sort of digital projection um, that's on the walls and everywhere within a room of a dwelling. You know, I think that's where art's going to go in the future. Whatever you do. So in a way, as an artist, you get public art and you start thinking about the space in which you're creating might be a really good way for you to think about NFTs and immersive art and artwork. We're not there yet in terms of, I mean, still the high-end collectors because the galleries I'm in, like I'm in Dallas, um, you know, there's a lot of money floating around in Texas. I'm in Palm Desert, California, which is like big palatial homes, you know, and these are people Mm -hmm. that have 10 or 15 of these massive homes, all this concentrated wealth. And um, Charleston, South Carolina has proven to be a really good location for me because it's a coastal city and there's a lot of old time, old generational money there as well as it's it's a still a resort town. And so a lot of expensive tourism happens there and they want to buy art when they're there. So that turned out to be a good um, market for me. And then um, Asheville, not so much because it's still more of a craft base collector base so if you do um more craft related artwork you'd probably do better there than i do um and i'm in nashville tennessee which you know my sister city and it's still not 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 that great of a market so so you know the spreading yourself around in different markets if you want to stay in the gallery circuit 
I use Instagram, like I said earlier, simply to notify my galleries and my collectors of my process and where I'm at with work I'm working on for them. But I will also say that the posts I did, I've done where I've listed the sales of pieces very discreetly mm-hmm. is has actually brought galleries to me saying, you know, you know, we can tell that you're a selling artist and we want you in our gallery. So if you view, view it as a tool and as a means of keeping in touch with your collector base, your galleries or, or whatever, look at it that way, set up a schedule like you and I do, set up, you know, your, your post text in notes yeah. or whatever type of thing you've got, cut and paste, drop it in, get it done. It's just something you do on a regular basis. And, and, and it's, it's, you're good to go. And it's just another part of your, the, the, your toolbox, really. Don't look at it like, you know, I'm going to go waste all this time on it because you can't, you just can't, you can't do your art and sell your art at the same time, full time. You can't, yeah. you've got to find these platforms and individuals that do it for you yeah. um, and be a part of it. And so um, diversify. Get into if if you're if you see the future of NFTs, get into the NFTs. I'm waiting for cryptocurrency to become legal, legalized yeah. before I'll get into it. That's, yeah. And and once, but you know, one of the things I do do is when I do a painting in my studio or a collage painting mix that I think is a more exceptional piece than the normal pieces. I haul it over to my local place and have a high resolution scan of it made. So I have that digital high end digital image of it that I can sell in future. So I'm thinking about NFTs knowing. So I'm creating a library of my best work with high resolution scans and in our, this entity charges 50 bucks for a basic scan. So it's not that much. Yeah. Um, so it's it's worth it. And I don't have them do any color correction or anything because I have my Photoshop skills. I just get the yeah. raw image from them, take it into Photoshop, do all the color correction, do the cropping um, and so forth. And, and I have those skills. And if you don't have those skills, get them. Yeah, I'm going to say you're very skilled in a lot of different areas. That I feel like a lot of artists are. I think there's one thing that I think a lot of artists kind of for, almost forget or like that maybe they shouldn't think about is that like you have to have skills beyond just painting or just beyond creating art you have to have the computer skills you have to have the computer literacy literacy you have to be able to use photoshop you have to be able to use you know video editing software you have to be able to use instagram reels you have to be able to use you know like word and writing you know writing grants and writing scripts and writing different things so you have to have all of these different skills what has been like the most surprising skill that you've either learned or you've had to learn being an artist I don't know that there's anyone in particular, although what would stand out immediately to roll off of my tongue here would be knowing Photoshop inside and out. Yeah. And having been on it for 30 years, back in its infancy when it was terrible, it was before yeah. Adobe bought it and really transformed it into a really good application uh, program that... Um, I would say my skill with Photoshop has enabled me because not only can I 
do my preliminary sketches in it, not only can I document my work really well, and if I, there are cases where every piece I do, whether, you know, it's an exceptional one that I'm having a scan made of, the normal pieces, I take segmented photos. And what I mean by that is I photograph different segments of it. And then I take those segments and I put them together in Photoshop and I end up with a much bigger file. Yeah. It's still not on the level of a scan, but if you can't afford to have scans made, that's one way as an artist that you can get larger files is to take segmented photographs and then put them together in learn Photoshop by all means. And plus two in the States, I don't know what it's like in the UK. Um, you know, you, you can write off your monthly yeah. fee for leasing the program on your taxes. So yeah. it gives you another write-off to do. So these are all things you have to think about as an artist. You have to think about marketing. You have to think about photography. Fortunately, I mean, I used to style photography when I was in advertising. So I know how to style photography. I know how to yeah. that is probably the single my marketing background is the single most important thing that has surprised me and how much I use it today. Hmm. Photoshop being the one thing that stands out the most. Um Take some night courses in marketing, take some night courses, online courses of how to use Photoshop, um, get lease, lease it because that way you always have the up-to-date version of Photoshop and all the tricks yeah. and services you can do. If you just do Photoshop in Lightroom, it's 10 bucks a month. Yeah. That's affordable, you know, and make that part of your practice. And you know, if you aren't skilled at writing and you know someone who is, barter with them to write your artist statement to help you with it. You know, give them an outline of what you do and have them put together a really good artist statement. You know, so seek out your tribe in what you need to make yourself successful as an artist. Get on as many platforms as you can. Um, utilize them as a tool, not as a time suck which is what a lot of them can be actually set a physical timer on your phone say okay i'm going to go on instagram for 40 minutes and that's it and when that goes off you get off the platform so if you develop these skills and if you really stick to it it will not only make you a lot happier make you more successful as an artist It'll give you more time in the studio to do what you love, which is create. Hmm. And so think of it all as a tool. So I have a question for you from the last artist I interviewed, uh, an artist called Emily Waterstein from LA. Very interestingly. Um, and her question for you is, when you've established an identity as an artist, how do you handle the process of trying something new? And how do you consider your audience? You know, I think in a way we've already kind of, you know, talked about that earlier yeah. roundabout. And so, you know, just to be more concise, I would say, um, you know, for, for me, it was actually the change in the collector base that made me change what I was doing anyway, reinventing myself, I call it. So it was natural to just create a, an a, a evolutionary process. But if you're actually wanting to grow and you're starting to get a little bit bored with what you're doing, another thing I always recommend with artists is create, you know, a series of different series hmm. so you can group different 
ways that you approach your work in very distinct series that's separated, but yet connected with through who you are as an artist. And each of those series can give you or allow you space to expand upon and grow and evolve as an artist. And then otherwise, if you're, if you kind of are already doing that, um, just create work for yourself where you evolve and you change. And there are artists that even actually create pseudonyms. Of course. And, you know, and so that's another way you can approach it and you can actually have, I know one artist that has five different pseudonyms that creates very different, oh, wow. completely different work under completely different names with completely different collector bases. Wow. And they love it and they thrive on it that way. So there are ways. I did it briefly. In fact, I did it when I made the big switch from abstract figurative to, abs- oh. to the abstraction I'm doing now. In the urban series, I created a pseudonym and I approached it that way for that very reason. I was worried about my collector base, what I had left of it from the the diminishing sales and um, created this new identity and started into them. What I found was it grew so rapidly that I just dropped the pseudonym and put my actual name to it and it was fine. So that would be my recommendation either or of those that's actually they're really good suggestions um do you have a question you'd like me to ask the next person interview um you know i actually wrote something down here let me see if i can find it (laughs) so we've talked so much about different things um ah yes if you could describe your work with one word, what would it be? So it's actually a dual question. One word, if you could describe it, what would it be? And this makes you really dive into and brainstorm about what you're doing to nullify down to a single word. What would it be? And where do you want to go with it? Oh, that's actually a great question. So that was that was what I came up with. See, that's also interesting because I have an idea of who I'm going to interview next. So I will send you their work just so you have an idea who they are. Um, somebody from the UK, very interestingly. And then I think actually he'll find that question very interesting, actually. Um, okay. So thank you very much. That's a great question. So okay. what does it mean to be a successful artist? And how do you measure the success of your own work? Yeah, that's the question of the ages, right? I mean, it depends on are you in a capitalistic society like we are, right? Sure. So in a capitalistic society, a successful artist is one that makes a lot of money. It's like Damien Hirst, right? You know, or Jeff Koons, you know, as, as, you know, being right up there. Um, You know, do you want to fake your own death and try to get your your art to skyrocket? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Reemerge as a pseudonym, you know. There's that. Oh, you know, right? Could that create a successful artist? Now, I, I I would say, you know, to answer it from a holistic point of view, um, I would say how to measure success as an artist is if you're actually producing what you love and what you're satisfied with. Are you satisfied at the end of the day hmm. with what you're creating? I consider that success. And I have this really deep-seated belief 
that if you create what you love, you will find a market for it. Hmm. Yeah. Because you'll be passionate about it. It'll show up in the work. If you're creating work you hate, people will subconsciously pick up on it. If, yeah. you, if you're creating work just for a specific market, it's going to show up in the work. Um, you know, con- you know, develop your own style, be happy with what you do, be satisfied at the end of the day and create the work you love and you will the, you find the market for it you will and you you can you can go out into the world with that work 100% behind it and when you're 100% behind it you will generate excitement about it when you generate excitement about it the money will follow that's really good advice actually that's very good advice so what would your younger self think about your work that i'm mad as a hatter <laughs> um yeah because you know when I was young I it was all more about survival it was about you know I grew up in a very um abusive childhood had a very abusive childhood and I grew up in it with a lot of turmoil and um not enough money too many kids parents divorced so I mean I I really feel the pain who and they they divorced when I was 12. So it was a really bad time. You know, adolescence is a really tough anyway. Yeah. Let alone with with your family disintegration. Um, I in fact embraced it because I figured anything new uh, would be better than what was there. Yeah. So so I didn't have a, a good family structure to start with. I didn't have a good foundation. So it was all about survival. But you know what was interesting is that when you, I also had uh, illnesses when I was a kid. So it, it, it you develop, you created, it's almost like you're born with an old soul when you're sick as a kid. Because it forces you to, if you're, if you're constantly living with pain of some kind or another, depending on what you're, you know, it's debilitating. It it affects who you are. It affects how you observe the world, but it also, what it does is it turns you into a keen observer. So not only was I sick a lot, but I was um, also living in this abusive environment. So you had, you developed these observation skills because you looked for all the physical triggers that was going to set off an abusive episode. So because of these observation skills, I think it's what informed me to become an artist later in my life. But at the time, it was all about survival. So I would have thought more about, you know, because I grew up in a blue collar family. I mean, my father worked for an automotive company and my mother was a nurse. And so it was um, very practical, you know, necessary. So so I, I envisioned myself going into nursing like my mother. I had no idea I'd be an artist back then. That's so interesting, though, how, as you said at the top of this interview, that that your past informs your future, like, very much did. And I think that's really, really fascinating, actually. That's really, really interesting. Um, it's just very interesting. Just kind of your whole journey is extremely interesting. <clears throat> and the last question for you, which we're glad to hear, what are you currently working on? And where can people find more about you and your work? Well, I'm currently working on um, what I've, what I've, come to realize within all these series in the urban series that I've been doing, the botanicals, the grids, the urban collages, what's actually gaining in popularity. When I first started doing the series, um, the urban series, the, the urban botanicals were the best-selling ones. 
And so it was like, okay, well, inevitably I'm going to end up doing more of those because they're what's selling. And so I need to keep a roof over my head. So I concentrated on it, but I did these other offshoots and the grids have gained some ground to the point where, because people love the concept of embedding an urban grid into a piece and I've actually gotten commissions from people That's cool. that want where they live embedded into oh, the commission. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's so, universal. Because it's universal. It can be anywhere. And of course, I do a disclaimer on the contract I do with them that, you know, I'm going to destroy a lot of that grid in the process. It's not going to be course. an exact replica of where you live, but the the energy of it will be in there. And so they they agree to that or it doesn't happen. Um, but what's really gaining ground, and I've been a little bit, in, in a way I'm surprised and in a way I'm not, are the urban collages. And I think it's like what we just talked about, you know, my love of paper from my graphic design days of being into print media and my love of Photoshop and creating stuff and printing it out and collaging into my work is the excitement of it. And what I love that that's where I gravitate to. And that excitement is generating in the work and it's generating, it's starting right. to gain more ground. So it's a lesson learned, you know, try, try things based on where your interests lie as an artist and the market will follow. Hmm. So, you know, that's, that's been really interesting. And so that's where, that's where the concentration is now. And that's where I want to go with it. That's absolutely amazing. And where can people find more about you and your work? Well, probably the, the most active. I mean, I don't update my website as much. And in fact, you can't even find it if you do a Google search, but it's annacarl.com. And that's A-N-N-A-C-A-R-L-L, two L's, don't leave out the second L.com. And Anna Carl Art on Instagram. And that's how you can keep up with me posting about progress and so forth. So those two entities are where I'm at. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm going to drop Saatchi art because it's just gotten too big and I've never made a single sale off of Saatchi. But that's so, actually where I originally found your work. Really? I know, yeah. So what, so what a lot of people don't know is that like, I obviously I look at Instagram a lot for art, but one of the best places for me to find new artists to, to feature or interview is Saatchi art. I spend, a, I've, I'm obviously, I'm part of their newsletter. So every other week they send, not me specifically, but they send out their newsletters. And I always look through them to look at who's being featured and what kind of art they're looking at. And then I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then I'm like, oh, this person's interesting. So that's how I actually find a lot of people for the Flying Fruit Bowl website to feature because I look at Saatchi Art a lot. Like Saatchi Art, Behance, and, and Instagram. So I don't look at TikTok. I'm not in, on TikTok. I don't pay attention to TikTok. So somewhere like Saatchi Art, because for me, that name, it means something. So for me, that's why I'm always like curious. And it's always, and something like Saatchi Art, I'm curious to see who follows who as well. The easiest way for me to find cool artists is to find out who comments and follows another artist's work. That's the best place to look for artists, in my opinion, that I've found so far. So maybe I should not drop such. I would advise you not to drop it. I'd say, you know, keep it, it even if you don't use it, just keep it as a profile somewhere okay. because someone's going to come across it at some point. And you okay. have to remember, even if it's like a dead web page that you don't use, someone's still looking at it, it still has reaching ability. Mm -hmm. um, even if you don't make a sale off it, that's cool. cool. You don't need to necessarily, but definitely keep it online because people will be looking at that. I most certainly looked at that. And it's actually where I got most of your bio from before I went onto your website, which is interesting yeah. because 
I looked for the, I looked for you. Obviously, I googled your name, saw your Saatchi, looked at the Saatchi page, and then I googled your name again to find your website. So <laughs> yeah, because my SEO is terrible. So <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, it was bizarre, and I was like, oh, that's weird. But then yeah, but yeah, yeah. so yeah, so I would advise you absolutely keep your Saatchi uh, profile, and actually, I'd advise any artist who hasn't got one to get one just for the exposure, the potential exposure, because also it's a big name, and also you don't know who's going to be looking at that. That's true. And I know it, it originated in at Saatchi Gallery in the yeah. UK, right? Yeah, so, over here in London, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, which is why so, I'm like, and over here in London, it's it's not prestigious exactly, but it's still, it hold, the name holds meaning for people. It's a bedrock name, yeah. Yeah, of course. So in, in the I would, industry, Yeah, so. I'd, I, actually, I recommend, if people ask me where to publish their work, I recommend that to a lot of artists. I'm like, publish it here because it means something. You know, yeah, so, even though a conglomerate owns it now. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, like I think yeah, the the politics of obviously just websites generally and money making is different. But I would highly still advise you. I'd highly advise you keep your profile just for the exposure on anything else. Okay. Yeah, that's good because I did get a message from them. You haven't been to your page in a while. You better do something, or we're going to drop you or something. <laughs> I, I don't. I say I don't like that because for me, like the internet should be an archive. Like the way mm -hmm. I look at everything I do for the fine free world is an archive. Like it doesn't matter about how many views I get today. It matters about who gets to see it in the future and is then inspired or affected by that. Yeah. You know? And it's, I have not updated it in a long time and I really should. So, like, so, you know, well, that's good advice. So I think I will, will do that. And it's on my list of things to do then, but, but and I'm you. on, I'm on LinkedIn, which I don't yeah. know if, you know, LinkedIn at all. Yeah. So oh, of course I know. No. And I think, um, I'm trying to think of all of them. I've been, have you ever heard of Activate? No. So that's another platform that's been hammering at me. I don't know. I might look into that. But anyway, really, my website and Instagram are going to be the most most active. And I guess Saatchi, you know. So yeah. anyway. Thank so, you, Anna, so much for your time. Oh, Aaron, thank like, you. It's delightful. You're you're great to talk to. Easy to talk to. And. Then goes the second and final part of my conversation with Anna Carr. Thank you very much for listening. Any questions or comments about it, please send me an email over at theflyingfruitbowl at gmail.com or get in touch on social media sites such as Instagram and Twitter. The Flying Fruit Bowl podcast is available on a variety of sites such as Apple Music, Spotify and YouTube. If you like the show, please consider rating, reviewing, sharing or subscribing on any of these platforms to help spread the word. Also, please don't forget to check out theflyingfruitball.co.uk for daily art inspiration and if you're a creative please get in touch for a chance to be featured or interviewed if you'd like to support the platform further we now also have a patreon page to hear start for more about and more information can be found over at patreon.co.uk forward slash theflyingfruitball additionally if monthly donations are not your thing we also have a paypal for one-time donations i'll include a link to our paypal in our show notes once again thank you very much for listening to the episode today until next time folks Please stay safe.